For our scripture reading this evening, we turn to the gospel according to John chapter 17. The well-known Lord's Prayer, or the Lord's intercessory prayer, made the night in which he was betrayed. Our text is found in Ephesians 5. Our interest in this is that our Lord makes reference to many of the same concepts and truths that our text will consider. And as we read, pay attention to two. Two. The first is glory, the glorification of Christ, the glorification of the people of God, and in that connection also the sanctifying of them, the sanctifying of them. That's the content of Jesus' prayer here. John 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given them, given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. Pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world. These are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes... I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither I pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. 
I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them and thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now our text tonight is found in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Our text is verses 26, 27, and 28, but we're going to begin reading with 25. And we will read also verse 29, the two bookends, really, of our text. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He might sanctify and cleanse it the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. As I said, our text is those middle three verses. Our focus this evening, beloved people of God, is not going to be so much on the relationship of an earthly husband and an earthly wife at the church, although the text is certainly about that. We're going to focus this evening upon an often overlooked and important teaching of the text concerning the relationship of Christ and the church, which is the reality of which the relationship of a husband and wife is but a picture, and notice some important things that are taught here in this text about that relationship. For one, this text highlights that what it is speaking about has to do with the glory of the church. That Christ will do something so he might present the church to himself, a glorious church. That's important, partly because that's the entire theme of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is all about the glory of the church, and what makes the church glorious. And that the Apostle has been speaking about since the opening verses of chapter 1, where he says that the church is blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, and then goes on to explain how those blessings are the glory of the church. And this text, then, has something very, very important to say, then, about that glory of the church that she is indeed glorious, and it teaches us 
the content of that glory. The text teaches that the substance of the glory of the church, that which makes the church glorious, is her holiness or her purity. There are, of course, many things that belong to it. You can go back in the book and begin to read. The apostle expounds how the glory of the church is partly that she is chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. goes on to explain that that glory of the church is that she redeemed from, by Christ. That glory of the church is partly that she is adopted as children and heirs. All those belong to those heavenly blessings of her glory. But here, one is especially explained. It is her holiness, her purity, that she is without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, or in the words of the text, made holy. This glory of the church is the work of Christ. It is Christ who makes the church glorious, and therefore the glory of the church is the work of Christ sanctifying her. That's another concept that's brought in here. Christ does something that he might cleanse the church that he might sanctify it. That's the word that's used to summarize all this great work of Christ, making the church glorious. Sanctification, therefore, is an important work of Christ. And in this text, even, is made the summary of the glory of the church. Also, one other feature of the text is that this work of Christ sanctifying the church is associated with baptism, the sacrament of baptism, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. How? With the washing of water by the word. That we notice because that's not how we often associate baptism. We often think of baptism in terms of the forgiveness of sins, so also even the Lord's Supper. But here, what's associated with baptism is sanctification. And we will see tonight how that is an important feature, therefore, of our creeds and biblical instruction on baptism, something worth reminding ourselves of. And then finally, we should keep in our mind as we proceed through this text that all of this proceeds from the love of Christ for the church. Indeed, one of the main teachings of the text, one of the great teachings of the gospel here, is that if you were to ask yourself, how does Christ love his church? You could say, of course, Well, the love of Christ was demonstrated when he gave himself for the church. That's true. In fact, that's the context. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. There's the giving is referring to his giving of himself in the death of the cross. But notice, Jesus gives himself to the church in love for a reason. The love of Christ isn't simply expressed in that he gave himself, but he gave himself for a purpose, for a reason, that he might sanctify it. Here, that great, 
great work of Christ, that which is the glory of the church, is located in the cross and located specifically in the love of Christ for the church. So consider with me this text this evening under the theme, Christ's love sanctifying his wife. Christ's love sanctifying his wife, which wife, of course, is the church. And we notice three things. It is a work of Christ, a love of Christ, sanctifying the church completely, then sanctifying that church by water, and finally sanctifying that wife to himself, to himself. So we explore quite thoroughly tonight the love of Christ sanctifying his wife or his church. First, what's emphasized in the text is this work of Christ sanctifying the church and the completeness, the thoroughness of that saving work of Jesus Christ. That work of Christ sanctifying the church is part of his salvation of the church from sin and in fact is one that's necessarily implied by his giving himself for the church in his death on the cross. Like justification or the forgiveness of sin, sanctification concerns sin. So that when we read in the text that he might sanctify it, or in other words, that he might cleanse it, or in other words, that he might present it without spot or wrinkle, that it should be holy and without blemish, all of those things refer to sin. The cleansing of the church from sin, the making holy of the church from sin, so that the church is not spotted or wrinkled or blemished with sin. So just like justification, it refers to our deliverance from sin. And yet this is an entirely different work than justification. Justification, of course, is the work of Christ satisfying the justice of God, satisfying the righteous judgment of God against our sins. God's offended by our sins. Our sins deserve punishment. There must be satisfaction. And Christ provides that in himself. And then God subsequently justifies us, which is God declares on the basis of the satisfaction of Christ that we who believe in Christ are forgiven. That the penalty has been paid and so much so that we are righteous before God. God sees us as sinless and as those whose sins are not only forgiven, but as those who have perfectly obeyed God. That's what justification is. That's basic to our deliverance from sin. There can be no deliverance from sin without that. It serves as the legal basis for everything else that follows. Without that, we are still dead in trespasses in sins. We must be redeemed. We must be legally released from the bondage of sin. And the apostle taught that earlier, too, as part of the glory of the church. In chapter 1, verse 7, 
We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Chapter 2, we read that he has abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, making in himself of two, one man, so making peace. This is, of course, the great benefit of Christ that we often think of in connection with the sacraments, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the sacrament of the baptism of water, the forgiveness of our sins, our redemption in Jesus Christ. But the profound statement of the text is that there is another purpose of Christ in giving himself unto death. And in fact, what's striking about the text is that justification or the forgiveness of sins isn't even mentioned. The text does not say, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might forgive the church, that he might declare the church righteous, that he might declare the church innocent of all of its guilt. No. What's striking here is that we read, God so loved the church that Christ gave himself for it that he might sanctify the church. That's how important this great work of Christ is. Anyone who would minimize sanctification, anyone who would consider that sanctification is not an aspect of salvation, or our work must reckon with this text, which speaks only of it in relationship to the gift of Christ on the cross. And this is not the only text where this is taught. One reason we read John 17 is that in verse 19 we read the same thing. For their sakes I sanctify myself. Ask yourself, where and how did Christ sanctify himself? Was he not already holy? Was he already not without blemish, pure? The answer is, of course. So why did he need to sanctify himself, and where did he do that? And the answer is, but he was filled with, covered with, our sins. And he sanctified himself on the cross. There he dedicated all of his life and gave his life on the cross. And he considers that a sanctifying. But now in 19 we read, I sanctified myself that they also may be sanctified. There too Christ echoes the language of this passage. He gave himself to sanctify the church. Have something similar in Titus 2 verse 14. He gave himself for us that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Why is this highlighted? Why is even justification omitted here? And the answer is 
Because it is the great end, goal, and purpose of Christ paying for our sins. Christ, of course, gave himself to the death of the cross to pay for our sins, to pay the penalty, to satisfy the justice of God. But he didn't do that as an end in itself. He did that so that he might sanctify us. That's the great end. That's the great goal. That's why this is highlighted here in this passage. Now what's especially remarkable about the passage is not only that, but we learn from this passage about the nature and necessity of this great work of Christ on his church. Sanctification is necessary. Every bit as necessary is our sins being forgiven. The one implies the other. Our sins are forgiven so that we might be sanctified. And our sins are forgiven exactly because we must be sanctified. The idea is, here is the church, the bride of Christ. She has made herself dead in trespasses and sins. Not only guilty to have a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, to live as his bride in order to share in his life as his bride, to live as a loving bride with her head. She must submit to him. She must love him. She must serve him with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. But she cannot, not simply because she is guilty and shameful with sin, but she is, in fact, unholy. Her heart and life is not consecrated to her Lord and Savior and husband as it ought to be. She does not give herself to love him with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. She is filthy and wrinkled and spotted in the words of the text, so that she has become disgusting and unwanted. Remember, her husband is pure. Her husband is undefiled. In fact, too pure and undefiled to have anything to do with the defiled and the disgusting, with the wrinkles and spots of his bride. Really, the emphasis of the text when it says that Christ sanctifies us so that he might present us to himself. That's what's being emphasized there. And think about this. Think about this. This is exactly how we would think, how we would behave, what we would expect with something that we redeem or purchase or that we marry. To redeem, as Christ redeemed us, is to buy us, to purchase us. Who buys bruised fruit? Who buys rotten fruit? Who goes to the store and looks for wrinkled clothes to get? Not what we want, not what we look for. And who looks for the most filthy, whorish bride that he can possibly look for and think of and find? Christ must sanctify his church. 
And so, in light of the text, we may define sanctification this way. That it is the work of Christ cleansing His bride from all the power and all the corruption of sin. Whereby that bride has made herself defiled, wrinkled, spotted, and blemished. So that now, in that work of Christ, she is made a new woman. She is made pristine. She is made a virgin. She is made unspotted and unwrinkled with sin. So that she now gives herself entirely and wholeheartedly to her husband in loving, submissive service to him. That's what sanctification is in the light of the text. Now, the emphasis, as I said on the text, is that this work is complete, that it is thorough, that it is entire. That's definitely the emphasis. That's obvious from the repeated words that essentially all mean the same thing. Sanctify, cleanse, make holy, wash, remove spots, wrinkles, blemishes, And then, if that weren't enough, there's the additional adjectives that are placed upon that. Negative ones. No spot, without blemish, or any such thing. That's the emphasis. So sanctification, when we deal with its completeness, we must see as complete in the sense that there is a consecration of the church from its loving devotion to the world and sin to God, to Christ, to her Lord. This is really the source and power of the antithesis. If you ask why there is an antithesis, it's not because God simply demands it and we have a calling to live according to it or there's an antithesis only insofar as we live a certain way But the antithesis is fundamental to the work of Christ sanctifying the church. He consecrates her unto himself. And that cannot be done unless she's unconsecrated, as it were, separated from, carved out from, turned from the world and the sin that she was previously devoted unto. She's changed in all of her ways, in all of her thoughts, in all of her deeds. That, too, belongs to the completeness. There is a sanctification of the entire church and every member of the church, baby as well as adult. Why, for example, even the baptism form speaks of babies being sanctified. It's a sanctification of male and female, husband and wife, and child born under the church. It's one reason that we administer baptism to infants. It's a sign of sanctification. It's a sign of Christ's work sanctifying His church completely and entirely. It's complete also with regard to every member of our soul and of our body. the sanctifying of us inwardly as well as outwardly. It's a sanctifying of our hands and our feet and our eyes and our nose and our ears. 
as well as a sanctifying of our mind, our thinking, our heart, or our will, a a sanctifying even of our emotions. It's a sanctifying of us entirely and completely. It's a sanctifying us not only with regard to a negative side, but a positive side. God sanctifies us just not simply so that we don't do certain things. We avoid certain things so that there's sins that we don't do, but a sanctifying of us such that we now do that which we did not do or could not do. We do those things that were before abhorrent to us and hateful to us. It's a sanctifying of us, not just with regard to one commandment or two commandments, but all of them so that we think and we will and we desire to keep all the commandments of God, all of His will, not just one or two things that appeal to us. And we find not only certain sins here and there, abhorrent and disgusting, but all of them. It's complete in that it refers not only to a sanctifying of us in a life to come, I don't think there's any doubt about that with regard to us that with what the text speaks about we would all agree yes yes there will be a complete thorough entire sanctification of us, sanctifying of us in the life to come then then we shall be perfect then then we shall entirely be sanctified but the text is speaking about that now there is in a very real sense something we may never forget, that is the teaching of Scripture everywhere. A complete sanctifying of us in this life, even as infants and as children. Now that needs some explaining, because obviously there is still sin also. And it is not the purpose of this sermon to explain that, you may Read elsewhere, even in the book of the Ephesians, where the apostle explains that. Why you may speak of sanctification in terms of putting off the old man, and that is a continual labor and work. But that proceeds from a sanctifying of us now, and we, we must view it that way. Christ loves us now. He sanctifies us now. We don't simply wait until we get to heaven to be sanctified. Might point out, although it's not the focus of the passage, that there is a special manifestation of this in husbands, and there must be. Notice how it all begins and ends. Husbands, so love your wives. That's the bookends. The whole The whole passage begins, husband, love your wives. And that's how it ends too. So, love your wives. Well, so how? So, love in some sort of vague, indefinite way? No, love your wives, first of all, by giving yourself to them. But giving yourself to them so that they might be sanctified. Now, that too requires explaining. You can't sanctify your wife, husbands. No more than you can sanctify yourself. Christ must sanctify you. And so when it comes to sanctifying your wife, that has to be seen as something quite different than the work of Jesus Christ, and yet it's very, very much related. And if you ask, 
Well, how do I as a husband sanctify my wife? How do I express my love? And keep in mind, this is the chief way you express your love to your wife. Any other thing that you do, and this is missing, you don't love your wife. So how would you do that? Well, number one, by loving her as yourself. By loving her a certain specific way. The way Christ loves his church. Loving her as yourself. You might say, well, of course. But remember what the text is talking about. Talk, the text is talking about the fact that it's Jesus' love and what he does that is the motive, that is the power behind the church's willful submission to him. And that follows through in marriage too. And any man that's wise should recognize it. Husbands, love your wives. Give yourself to them. Dedicate your life to them. They will love you. They will love you. That's a sanctifying of them. Number two, love her by giving your own sanctified body, your own sanctified soul to her. Don't give unto her the old man. Don't give unto her all your sin and iniquity and sinful thoughts and desires. Give unto her that which is sanctified by Christ. Use your sanctified emotions and mind and will, your sanctified love to her. Exactly that. And you will find something. That that has a powerful, powerful effect upon leading your own wife to Jesus Christ. Put it another way, the Lord can use you to powerfully affect sanctification in your own wife. Also, as a part of that, leading her as head from the ways of sin into the ways of righteousness, the ways of Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind. That's part of this text. And when it's applied to marriage and how we live in marriage, we should remember that this is one of the ways, the primary ways, that we show we love our wives. Secondly, the text highlights the how, sanctifying how. And what's highlighted here is again something we might not exactly associate, except we read that it's a cleansing or a washing of water by the word. Christ uses an agent to sanctify us. That agent is the Holy Spirit. That's what specifically Christ uses to sanctify us, the Holy Spirit. But now, what the Scriptures teach, what our creeds always teach, is the Word or the Spirit always works in connection with the Word. And that's what the text is teaching. Now it uses the sacramental sign of the Spirit, which is water. Water is the great sign in baptism of the application of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ upon us. And again, what's profound about the text is that's called a sanctifying of us. 
So this is an important part of the sign and seal of baptism. Now what I want to do for you this evening is demonstrate how this truth is indeed highlighted and taught in our creeds and in Scripture. And I do so because, again, often among us, if we talk about baptism and the washing of water, we often think of it as having to do with our sins being washed away in the sense that our sins are forgiven. Justification. True. But not the whole story. Consider the Belgian Confession, Article 34. Now listen, because this explains how this actually works. How Christ actually sanctifies us by the water of baptism, by the Word. By baptism, we are received into the church of God and separated from all other people. Notice the antithesis there. And strange religions, that we may wholly belong to Him. Now keep in mind that wholly belong to Him is not simply wholly belong to Him as property, but wholly belong to Him as His bride. And this testifies to us that He will forever be our gracious God and signifies to us that as water washes away the filth of the body and is seen on the body of the baptized, so doth the blood of Christ, there's His death, by the power of the Holy Ghost, internally sprinkle the soul and cleanse it from its sins and regenerate us from being children of wrath unto children of God. It's talking there about sanctification. A literal change. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26, question and answer 69. How art thou admonished and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage? Notice this is talking about the sacrifice. Thus, that Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereto this promise, that's the word, that I am as certainly washed by His blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul. That is, from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water by, the filthy, by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. Talking about sanctification there. Question and answer 70. Same thing. What is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? Well, first, it is to receive of God the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by a sacrifice on the cross. That's justification. And also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ. Again, members of Christ. Members of his body members of him as a wife is to a husband, that so we may more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. That's the teaching of our creed. The very same teaching of this passage. It's the teaching of Romans 6, verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Newness of life is sanctification. You see, water represents the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Not simply that that blood was 
satisfaction, satisfied the justice of God, but there's real power in that blood, which is why sanctification also is an important, important feature of the sign and seal of the Lord's Supper. Now, it should be evident that this work, sanctifying us, is the work of Christ. And that's why it is part of the glory of the church. That's evident from the figure. Oh, we might say to ourselves, yes, I can, I can scrub a little dirt and filth off my body. So just like I scrub water and filth and pollution from my body, so I sanctify myself. No, 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 no. Remember, sanctifying is a giving life to the dead. It begins with regeneration. It must remove the bruises and the stink from the rotten, filthy fruit. Sanctification is the taking of a whorish, fornicating woman and making her a virgin. It's impossible. Oh yes, sanctification results in the fact that your mind and will, your desires, your emotions, all of your body and soul is laboring and working and engaged, living according to the will of God. But you don't work that work. Christ sanctifies. That's the emphasis of the text, even when it twice says that he might, he might, that he might do this. This is his will. This is a desire. It is he alone that must do this, exactly because there is no other way. Sanctifying requires that Christ give himself unto death. Points out that no more than we can forgive ourselves and declare ourselves righteous. No more than we can become righteous by our own works are we able to do the works of God unless we are sanctified by Christ. Spots are too deep, the wrinkles too great, the blemishes too many, the sin too powerful. Lastly, we consider, beloved, the fact that this sanctifying of us by water or by a washing of water by the Word, meaning that Christ works this in connection with His Word, even in the sacrament of baptism, that's true, that this is a work of Christ sanctifying us to Himself. That, too, is an important feature, an aspect of sanctification. Sanctification, we may never look at, is simply something that's done to us for our own sake. That is something that's done to us so that we kind of remain to ourselves and for ourselves and about ourselves. Sanctifying is something that's done to us so that we may be said to be sanctified unto Him. We might say 
that the goal of Christ and his giving of himself for the church is to present the church to himself a spotless, wonderful bride. We may even define sanctification as such, which is why sanctification is closely related with the word holiness or being holy as it is in the text. You see, holy has fundamentally behind it the idea of consecration. Consecration has the idea of taking that which is common, common, and you dedicate it, you separate it from that which is common so that it's set apart for something special. So the Sabbath day is the holy day, Sunday. It's otherwise just like every day of the week. It's a day of a week. It's got a name like every day of the week. But it's separated from all the other days for special service. You go back to the Old Testament and you look at the tabernacle or the temple. They were just a tent in a building like other tents and buildings, maybe a little prettier and maybe had a more decorations. And, but that was all part of setting it apart, making it holy in the temple and tabernacle were, were dishes and cups and, and, and silverware and, and there was bread and there was candlesticks and, and all kinds of things which of themselves could be common, but they were sanctified, they were set apart, made different from all other eating utensils and, and tables because they were for the service of God. That's what holiness means. It means that Christ comes and He separates you from everything else. Everything that's common. Everything that's sinful. Every, everything that's of the earth earthy. And He says, you're mine. You belong to me. You don't belong to anyone else. You're my woman. You're my bride. I'm your husband. Your body belongs to me. Your mind belongs to me. Your heart and your will, all of it is for me. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is the taking of your heart and your mind and your will and your soul and your hands and your feet and your eyes and your ears and they're no more for you. They're not to enrich you. They're not so that you can live a life independent and alone and off by yourself. That's the life of sin. And so that it's all in the service of Christ. It's dedicated to Him. It's for Him. Keep in mind now that that's marital language too. This is how Christ characterizes the entire marriage of Him and his church. So we may say that sanctification is that work of Christ whereby we are saved from the power of sin such that we are turned from a life of sin, thinking sin, doing sin, willing sin, to with that same body, heart, mind, soul, to give a new strength dedicated in service to him as his wife and his bride. And now, the great emphasis of the text is that this is the glory of the church. Now that shouldn't surprise us again 
if we think of the figures, what makes a piece of fruit, a beautiful, beautiful piece of fruit, without spot, without blemish, or a piece of clothing, sheets for your bed, or even more apt, a bride. It's that she's pure and dedicated heart, mind, soul, and strength to her husband. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says that he might present it to himself a glorious, glorious church. The church is glorious. Oh, that's the ugliness of sin, too. This is why sometimes we can't see the glory of the church. We need to look at the church by faith. We need to see the church as Christ sees her. It is easy to look at the church and see all the faults and the spots and the wrinkles, and we have to live by faith, remembering this work of Christ, this is what He's doing. And yes, that's why, that's why the full full perfection of it must wait until the great day of consummation, the marriage of Christ and His church. What's, what's even more amazing here is that Christ identifies Himself with that. This glory is Christ. It's what He's done. In fact, in, in John chapter 17 that we read, there's a statement made that I don't know if I would dare say it if it wasn't in Scripture. Jesus says, God, I am glorified in them. Christ is glorified in the church. And if you ask how that is, here's the answer. By His work sanctifying His church, it shows forth His own glory as well as the glory of the church. And then, finally, this. Did you notice as we read John 17 that the concepts and what Jesus was praying about, the glory of the church, His own glory, the Father's glory, I'm glorified in them, they're glorified in me. How, that, how that's part of sanctification you saw that when we read that, but did you notice how that's all tied into being one and being one in love? That belongs to the mystery. That is the mystery of Christ and the church. That Christ so loves the church. That not only did he give himself for it, but he gave himself that he might sanctify that church unto himself, a glorious church. And that, beloved, is your glory also. So serve him who is your Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for this glorious word of thy work sanctifying us unto thyself that we might serve and glorify thee. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.